Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're in a small club in Macon, Georgia, after hours, leaning up against the bar while there's a break in the action, waiting for the bartender to come back with a couple of beers for you and your friends. You've had a few drinks and you've been dancing all night long. You're soaked in sweat like everyone in the place. Cigarette smoke hangs thickly in the air above you, unwilling to travel far in the warm stillness of a high summer night. Cheers erupt from the crowd as the band, Otis Redding and the Pine Toppers, retakes the stage. You're clapping along with the crowd, which is already loud to begin with, loud enough that Otis has to shout into the mic to thank everyone for their applause before cueing the band as they pick up right where they left off. They play a fast little number that makes the whole place shake. The drummer taps out a little rhythm on the snare as Otis wails into his microphone. The rhythm section joins in, and then the horns. Even by the bar, you can feel the dance floor buckling under your feet. You glance back at the bartender, who's busy with the register. You see a couple of long necks you hope are yours, resting on the bar in front of him, when something else catches your attention. A figure by the entrance. A man, small in stature, but not without command. He's only half visible in the light of the club. Shadows obscure his face, but he looks familiar. Even from across the dark and frenzied space, his silhouette, made taller by his carefully coiffed hair, casts a formidable shadow as he walks through the bar with purpose. That's when you realize it's James Brown, the godfather of soul, soul brother number one, Mr. Dynamite himself, the hardest working man in show business. But instead of a microphone in his hands, he's carrying two shotguns. I'm Bridget Todd, and this is Beef. If you're someone who knows even a little bit about music history, you almost certainly know the name James Brown. Even if you haven't listened to a lot of his songs, you probably have an idea of his signature sound with his patented raspy screech and instantly recognizable warble. Soul aficionados will probably know the name Joe Tex, too. But to casual fans of the genre, that name may not spark the same instantaneous recognition that James Brown does. Now, there's a good chance that you've heard Joe Tex's music, too. Only, you didn't know who you were listening to. Or maybe, because Joe also had a raspy voice, but could also croon, you thought it was James Brown. When he was just a junior in high school, Joe Tex won first prize at a Houston talent show. The prize was $300, a trip to New York City, and a week's stay at a hotel just a little ways away from the legendary Harlem fixture, the Apollo Theater. which is how a high schooler from Rogers, Texas, got his first taste of the big time. In front of the notoriously tough Apollo crowd, a crowd that was encouraged to show its displeasure at whatever onstage act wasn't cutting it 
by booing, yelling, and even getting out of their seats and standing in the aisles to ridicule performers. Tex managed not just to perform passably at the amateur night show, but come in first, four weeks in a row. Tex avoided even a whiff of the Apollo Executioner, whose job it was to escort acts offstage after being sufficiently booed by the audience. From an early age, he was an undeniable talent. King Records out of Cincinnati signed Tex right out of high school in 1955, another major accomplishment for someone so young. King was focused on signing mainly rockabilly acts at the time. Joe Tex seemed a natural choice, and King hoped he would become a major draw. But he had a hard time breaking out. His recordings struggled to get noticed. Where Tex always came out ahead of his peers were his live performances. His reputation on stage afforded him the chance to open for other, bigger acts that record execs believed had greater star potential. Acts like Jackie Wilson, Little Richard, and James Brown. Born in 1933, two years before Tex, James Brown was raised by his Aunt Honey in Augusta, Georgia. She ran a brothel and sold moonshine. James's father was a migrant worker who harvested pine tar for turpentine manufacture. His mother abandoned him at age four. When he was 15, he was jailed for stealing clothes out of a car and sentenced to eight years in prison. While incarcerated, he became acquainted with the singer Bobby Bird, who advocated for James's early release, telling authorities that under his watchful eye, James would put his musical talents to good use. Once he was released, he began singing gospel music with Bird and his band, which evolved into the secular soul sound that he would become known for. But Brown was perhaps better known for his up-tempo numbers and having the hottest band on the Chitlin Circuit, and maybe anywhere. And for those of you who may be wondering, what exactly is the Chitlin Circuit? It was a collection of venues throughout the South, Upper Midwest, and Eastern states, where it was safe for Black musicians and concertgoers to play and experience live music in the Jim Crow era. The name refers to a down-home soul food dish, boiled pig intestines seasoned and traditionally eaten with hot sauce. And it was the kind of food that was prevalent at the music venues that Black performers appeared in. Dr. Portia Moltzby is a professor emerita of ethnomusicology at Indiana University, where she was the founding director of the Archives of African American Music and Culture. She also co-edited African American Music, an introduction, the definitive book on Black music in America and her work is the basis for Carnegie Hall's timeline of African-American music. Dr. Moltzby told me that the Chitlin Circuit was absolutely essential to the success of countless Black artists and the culture writ large. It was significant in that those artists provided the main entertainment within Black community life. And it was also significant to the artists to be out there performing live so the audiences would buy the music. So it, so it was important in that the community was able to, they had access to a wide range of artists that they heard on radio that otherwise they would not have had. And most of them had black promoters who knew how to, you know, hustle the smallest cities and small cities had them as well. And so that, that's why that was the life. I mean, entertainment was big, you know, throughout the, all black communities throughout the South. And, and, and remember during this period, the majority of Black people still resided in the South. And, and that's where a lot of those uh, Southern venues were very much a part of that circuit. And one other thing I want to say about the Chitlin Circuit, it allowed local performers to you know, get that experience of performing with well-known performers. Because local performers often opened the show. And I mean, we're very seasoned local performers, that's not anybody. 
Over the years, Brown employed a number of talented musicians, a few who went on to be stars in their own right, including saxophonist Maceo Parker, guitarist Catfish Collins, and his brother, bassist Bootsy Collins, both of whom became standout members of Parliament and Funkadelic. Joe Tech sang a lot of ballads over his career, but over time, his sound included up-tempo numbers too, like his 1977 smash hit, Ain't Gonna Bump No More With No Big Fat Woman. Just like Tex, Brown could croon too. Songs from early in his career like Try Me and Please, Please, Please show just how good he was at it. He even cut a record called Gettin' Down To It in 1969, where he put his own spin on jazz ballads like Strangers In The Night and That's Life. That's life. That's what the people say. Riding high in April. Shot down in Putting their music aside for a moment, where Tex and Brown really overlapped was in their stage performances. The bad blood between them started with an argument over dance moves. Both Tex and Brown were fond of doing the splits and performing mic stand tricks in their acts. You know, the move where a singer tips the mic stand so that it slowly starts to fall and then yanks the cord to pull the stand right back to him. That was a staple of James Brown's routine. You can see him do it in a lot of his shows. It was also a staple for Joe Tex. In fact, Tex said that tipping over the mic stand was his move and that Brown stole it from him. And Brown claimed it was the other way around, that it was his move and that Joe Tex was the one who stole it from him. Black audiences dictated what performance we're going to do on stage. Nobody wanted to be booed. You know, nobody wanted to go home and you can't sing or you can't move. Nobody wanted that. Black cultural expression involves, this is what a lot of people didn't understand, but I mean critics outside the community, that dance and music and visuals are all a part of, all different sides of the same coin. In Africa, there is no, there's not a separate word for music and dance. They're all considered to be one act. So in our minds, even though we don't necessarily intellectualize that way, but it's something that's just, that has been passed on to us from gener- through the generations that, like going to church, you go to church dressed a certain way, period. It's been, how do you know that? Eh, that's what my mama did. That's what my grandmama did. That's what, so it passes down over generations. The same thing with music. When you're going to perform, even in church, you think about those people, they're going to dress up, those gospel quartets or whatever you used to see in the churches. They're going to dress up. They're going to bring the A game, they, they, particularly the quartets. They're going to have those movements. Joe Tex and James Brown both have that shared religious, let's say, reference for performance. Because black preachers, they, 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 they were performers. They performed. And they often did provide the... the, the uh, reference for performance for for the artist it's just a part of it so the the, the challenge was how do i outmove the next person or how so there was constant competition among all of them everybody had to have a trademark style that's why they were protective of that because performing in black people are very critical we're a discerning audience <laughs> Oh yeah, oh yeah. They like they said they could do anything for white people and they'd like it, but you know, you got to bring a, another kind of game to play before black people. So they they talk about that. Their disagreement over who was the true originator of the dance moves they both loved to do 
was made more awkward by the fact that in the mid-50s, both Tex and Brown were recording songs on imprint labels of King Records. Both stayed with the label through the late 50s, though Tex parted ways with them in 1960 in favor of the Detroit-based Anna Records, where he recorded the single, Baby, You're Right. If you think I love you, well, baby, you're right. And if you think I want to hug you, a year later, in a move that could only be described as artfully petty, James Brown recorded his own version of Baby, You're Right, but not before tweaking the lyrics and composition, enough to earn himself a songwriting credit on the track alongside Joe Tex. If you think I love you, well, baby, you're right. And adding salt to the wound, James Brown's version of the song performed a whole lot better, even breaking into the R&B top 10. And with that, Joe Tex finally found his way onto the Billboard charts for the first time in his career, thanks to James Brown. Brown had already achieved that feat of his own in 1956, when Please, Please, Please made it to number six on the list. Here's where things go from petty to personal. Around the same time James Brown recorded his own version of Joe Tex's Baby, You're Right, he became romantically involved with backup singer B. Ford, none other than Joe Tex's ex-wife. James and B. even recorded a song together, You've Got the Power. And on this song, B. sings to her lover about having found a better man. I'm leaving you, darling, and I won't be back. I found something better somewhere down the track. Soon after the song was released, James wrote a letter to Joe Tex, letting him know that he and B. were through and that he could have her back if he wanted. This prompted Tex to get back at Brown in a language that he could understand, a song of his own called You Keeper, where he calls Brown out by name. James, I got your letter. It came to me today. You said I could have my baby back, but I don't want her that way. At this point, the men's dislike for each other was undeniable and well-known. The musicians in their orbit knew about their original beef with each other, a beef that only expanded when each of them put out a track dissing the other, a move that would be famously copied into the modern era by the likes of Jay-Z and Nas and Mob Deep and Tupac, to name two well-known examples. But the Chitlin circuit being what it was in the early 60s, rather small and segregated, it was impossible for Joe Tex and James Brown to avoid one another when they toured. Soul music was so different. I mean, R&B, you could take part of it because R&B, then you had your rock and roll, so, you know, coming off of R&B. So that brought a new kind of feel for, uh, let's say, mainstream popular culture. And then white artists began to, you know, pick up on that. And then it became so-called rock and roll. But then soul was so specific to black people. The sound, the aesthetic of the sound, the sound idea was so different from mainstream. It was, like I say, it was too church. It was too intense. You know, it was, it was just all about a kind of experience that whites didn't have. That was hard for them to relate. The screaming, you know, the the raspiness of the voice, the the stuttering, the kind of spoken style was just very different. And pop, it was just too radical for, for pop radio. 
So then, of course, there are all of these singers are competing for the same venues for performance. They're competing for the same uh, limited playlist of black radio. And then, of course, uh, most performers made their money through live performances. Sometimes, Joe and James were even on the same bill. That was the case on July 26, 1963, in Macon, Georgia. The night Tex was set to open for Brown and his band. The night that sent their rivalry beyond the point of no return. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s, and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it. The concert was meant to be a homecoming show for James Brown. It even said so on the poster. Maybe Joe Tex was upset that he wasn't mentioned, even though James Brown's name appeared twice, along with several other acts. Or maybe he was just fed up with Brown and knew that this show, where Brown was set to perform in front of a hometown audience, was a perfect opportunity to embarrass him. And that's exactly what he did. Now, to understand just how personal Joe Tex made his attack, you have to understand the cape routine. This was a gimmick Brown had worked into his act, where near the end of his performance, he would feign a kind of fainting spell, putting his microphone down and slowly getting onto his hands and knees. At this point in the gimmick, Danny Ray, Brown's lifelong MC and cape man, would arrive on stage with the cape and drape it over Brown's shoulders. He would help Brown to his feet, pat him on the back in a show of support, and begin leading him off stage just before Brown would miraculously recover, throwing off the cape as he returned to the microphone, sending his audience into a frenzy. When Joe Tex came on stage that night, he had on a cape of his own. But instead of the luxurious cape that Brown would don every night, Tex was wearing a ratty blanket with holes in it. He fell to his knees just like Brown would, only Tex pretended the cape was tripping him up as he rolled around struggling to get free. Then, some say Tex shouted, some say he sang, Please, 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 somebody get me out of this cape! It's safe to say that it was clear to the audience exactly what Tex was doing. Certainly, it was not lost on James Brown. But he didn't retaliate right away. No, 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 no. James Brown took it on the chin. After all, Mr. Dynamite knew that the show must go on. And so it did. He waited until after his performance to respond to the slight. At which point, he had his entourage find out where Tex was hanging out and decided that he'd have a look for himself. Now, the details of what occurred next are disputed, to a point. But what no one disputes is that James Brown strolled into an after-hours juke joint wielding two shotguns and proceeded to shoot up the place. Witnesses dove for cover, including the band, none other than Otis Redding and the Pine Toppers, as James Brown and possibly others opened fire at random inside the club. 
Some accounts say that six people were injured, others say seven. Just who Brown shot, how severely they were hurt, and whether he was actually aiming for Tex will never be completely known. Thankfully, no one died, and Joe Tex was not among the victims. Here's what two members of the Pine Toppers had to say about the incident in a 2006 interview with a reporter from Creative Loafing, drummer Charles Davis. I was the last one to know what was happening. I'm playing drums with my eyes closed and getting down. The crowd was noisy and I couldn't hear the shooting. By the time I figured out what had happened, everybody was on the floor and I'm up there on stage by myself. Band leader and guitarist, Johnny Jenkins. Seven people got shot. They were reloading and coming back in. Me and Otis, we were hiding behind a piano. Like many moments of violence, it was over in a flash. As quickly as he arrived, James Brown departed, getting behind the wheel of his own tour bus, no less, and speeding off into the night. Members of his entourage stuck around, allegedly handing out $100 bills to everyone in the place, hush money to keep them quiet. And it worked. James Brown never paid a price for his actions that night. Had one of the rounds hit or killed Otis Redding or a member of his band, history would have been different. Not even James Brown would have escaped with a career at all if he'd actually murdered a fellow soul singer that night. He'd have been scorned and written off as a bad punchline. A sour note signaling the end of another talented musician's life. Had things ended differently, James Brown would have faded from sight and memory. Instead, the events of July 26, 1963 are what faded into relative obscurity, as did the feud between the two men at the center of that night's events even as James Brown's star continued to rise. After that night in Georgia, there were a few more signs that neither man was completely done with the other, but nothing came close to the shooting. Three years later, Joe Tex recorded a B-side, I'm a Man, which includes the line, If I were a dance floor, James Brown could mash potatoes on me all night long. What's kind of strange about this lyric is that it isn't totally clear whether this is a diss or just a reference to JB. And in 1968, Tex had a sign on the side of his tour bus that read, The Original Soul Brother Number 1, a jab at one of the many monikers James Brown went by. You know those pizza shops with the same name that like to snipe at each other about which one was first in business, Ray's Original Famous or Famous Original Ray's? It's kind of the same thing here. On his 1972 LP, Get on the Good Foot, James Brown claps back at Joe Tex once again on the song Funky Side of Town during a call and response with Bobby Bird and Hank Ballard. When Joe Tex is mentioned in the call and response, Brown replies with the ultimate diss, pretending to have no idea who he is. After that, traces of the rivalry seemed to stop. Perhaps enough time had passed for the intensity to die down. Where once there was a fire, only embers remained. In the late 60s, James Brown took his career to new heights. With his song, Cold Sweat, which many consider to be the first true example of funk, he set himself apart from other acts in a new and singular fashion. From there, his fame continued to grow as he made even more headway into the white American audience. His appeal and recognition among whites ensured that his career would reach new heights. Over his lifetime, Brown would notch 110 songs on the R&B Billboard charts. 17 of them were number ones, earning Brown the second most R&B number ones of all time. Only Stevie Wonder and Aretha Franklin have more. They're tied for the most of all time, each having managed 20 number one hits. James Brown apologized on wax his whole career. 
when he wasn't apologizing, he was begging, pleading, imploring whoever he is addressing in a song to forgive him. He is often begging women, an old lover or a current one, to give him another chance even if he doesn't deserve it. But the women in his songs don't exist. The version of Brown on the records is an act, a carefully cultivated version of himself. Only the listener is real. The songs are designed for them, to take in all the apologies and pleas for forgiveness, as if they were the intended target. Perhaps this had the subtle effect of making it easier to forgive James Brown when he acted badly in his life outside of the recording booth, as he often did. Just ask B. Ford or any of the other women that Brown was involved with. And let's not forget the multiple times that he would actually be arrested for wielding weapons in public. Listeners had already forgiven him countless times after all. What was one more? There's a kind of synchronicity between the remorseful James Brown persona of his songs and the James Brown who said and did things in the world that require forgiveness. Forgiveness he may not deserve, even if his contribution to music is unimpeachable. Well, I think he had good guidance from the background, his managers, and, you know, trying to smooth things over, keep him focused. And, uh, I mean, you just can't beat a certain level of musicianship. You take somebody like Michael Jackson. I mean, all the controversy surrounded him. But you still, the guy was just a fantastic performer. You just, you, and same thing with James Brown, same thing with Joe Tex, you, whatever they did. You were not, you know, his incidents when he went to jail, when he beat his wife or whatever, you know, whatever the thing was, uh, he always, music always trumped, you know, this other. And I think for James Brown, he was viewed as, as such a hero for a long time because of his stance uh, with his uh, political social lyrics of, of that era. And that really endeared him with a lot of people. You know, the, so James Brown, you know, he starts in the 50s. He's doing straight up R&B, you know, with the same church intensity, this and that. But in the 60s, you know, with the, the, the black power movement, James Brown very much became plugged into that ideology, whereas Joe Tex never did. Joe Tex remained pretty much straight up, but had that soul sound in dealing with the everyday. He dealt with some of his songs were more, you know, dance oriented, you know, lighthearted comedy. Whereas James Brown, that's where I see the separation, you know, went the, the, uh, the political. While he had a respected and fruitful career of his own, Joe Tex never achieved the same level of mass appeal James Brown did. He finally found that hit that he'd been looking for in 1964 with the release of Hold On to What You've Got before racking up six songs in the top 40 the following year. Tex enjoyed a great deal of success into the mid-70s. On paper, Joe Tex and James Brown should have had greater parity in their careers. But fairness isn't something the music industry is known for. Like any entertainment business, success in music is all about popularity. If you're hot, you're hot. Bangers are undeniable. Joe Tex, near the end of his career, he was still racking up number one hits. He just died too soon. And so he wasn't there as long. So I think that's in, in the end, because he was an outstanding performer. And then I also think his label, he was on a smaller label, Dow. But James Brown was on a, a, a very recognized, very well-oiled machine in terms of marketing label, King Records. But I think at a certain point of high-level intensity of the country, what we were feeling, that his music didn't meet that same level of intensity. So I think that's why he, he just he wasn't he didn't live long enough, you know, to make the kind of mark that he 
could have, and then the the turbulent times impacted on his popularity compared to James Brown. James Brown was heard all over the place because of the social political message. And so they're rotating how many songs a day. So Joe Tex may not get into that rotation, although he had he had several number one hits now, even while Brown was having his hits. But it was just a different kind of hit. At the end of the day, Joe Tex was a great singer and performer, but James Brown was James Brown. One of those rare individuals who, through sheer will and massive talent, can spark a reaction out of people like no one else. Just listen to how the crowd reacts at his performance at the Apollo Theater. If you've seen any footage of teenage girls losing it when they saw the Beatles live in concert, this is the same thing. For all his flaws, Brown's impact on music speaks for itself. Not many musicians are credited with starting a new genre simply by cutting a new single. There's a reason he's a household name. But for some, Joe Tex was a household name too. When he passed away from a heart attack in 1982, he was eulogized on Soul Train by the show's host, Don Cornelius and Barry White. Barry, Joe Tex is a man we feel must not ever be forgotten, uh, not only because uh, he was so important to the success of this show during the early stages of, of Soul Train, but also because he was such a fantastic entertainer, though underrated, and such a fantastic human being. I'd just like to have your impression of Joe Tex from an artist perspective because I know you followed his career at least as long as I did. Joe, uh, when I was a young teenager, Joe exploded on the horizon in the record industry. And the thing that I was attracted to him most by was the fact that he wasn't just a singer. He was a songwriter. He was a producer. He was an arranger. He was a musician. Joe Tex was young, gifted, and black. Joe Tex brought a new spirit to the record industry, a new sound to the record industry, and he, it was played down. But the genius of the man will live on through Barry White, through the other young ones that knew of him. For those who missed him, who didn't get a chance to see him, you missed a great black man. Beef is a production of Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode was written by Ben Austin Docampo with help from James Levine and Pete Musto, who also edited this episode. Our executive producer is show creator Jeremiah Tittle. Don't forget to subscribe to, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out. I'm Bridget Todd. Thanks for listening to Beef. And remember to stay petty. Who knows how far it'll take you? Next Chapter Podcasts.